welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Jen Ashman from EPAM Continuum. It isn't every day that you get to chat with one of your literary heroes, but sometimes here on The Resonance Test, such meetings do happen. John Campbell, EPAM Continuum's Head of Experience and Service Design, just had a stupendous conversation with the venerable Tom Peters, co-author of the 1982 classic In Search of Excellence, author of the recent The Excellence Dividend, and many other tomes. In their spirited dialogue, Campbell admits that reading Peters' book basically turned him into a designer. This conversation is brimming with amusing and instructive banter about the dangers of capitalizing the A in Agile, the sayings of Jimi Hendrix thinking skunkily, the spiritual side of business, and Mark Twain. As a bonus, you'll hear both Peters getting choked up about General Dwight D. Eisenhower and Campbell spelling out how EPAM Continuum hires for, among other attributes, poetry. There's something deeply resonant in this episode of The Resonance Test, and we are not talking about the sound of us occasionally tapping a keyboard. Peters and Campbell connect, and you will too. All you need to do is listen in. I came across uh, your book, Reimagine, in late 2005, and it had uh, ended up scratching an itch I had because I'd been working in marketing and working in marketing and brand strategy. And I started to rethink the types of products and services I was helping brand and market and the way that organizations were working and how they deliver value and the like. And um, in there, you talked a, a, a bit about, a good bit about design and the power of design. And uh, right. so you fast forward, I guess, within two years of, of reading Reimagine, I actually quit Harley and went to grad school at the Institute of Design in Chicago. So uh, oh, cool. I, I say that with all, uh, all seriousness that uh, um, it, I... I uh, well, I, I don't, I don't uh, take that wrong, but my mom might have uh, been a little uh, unhappy with you at the time when I quit uh, a good job at Harley-Davidson to, <laughs> to, to move and, and go to school again. But uh, uh, I, I want to thank you for that. You, weren't, first a, and you weren't a Harley family or anything like that who were fifth generation or anything? No, no, nothing no, like that. Well, and and she probably appreciated that I wasn't riding every day anymore, so maybe it all worked out. Came out in the wash. Yeah. But yeah, well, so, so I'm kind of where I am at Continuum now. I worked now. with a guy. I worked with a guy who uh, went to work for IBM based on all the wonderful things we said in search of excellence. And kind of the day he walked in, all the shit hit the fan, and he never forgave me. <laughs> so, 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 so now each of your so books now, has now something I'm, like now that. Now I'm one. I'm batting batting 500. One out of two. That's what? not bad. No, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm, I'm sure there's yeah. a, a, a dozens and dozens more out there uh, that, that probably quit something or other to go try something else because of those. But that's how I, uh, I mean, that was, I guess, 2005. So that was like 14 years ago. Um, started design school in 2007 and joined EPAM Continuum in 2008. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it worked out well. So. That's, I mean, that's really cool for me for a different reason. Number one, obviously, I'm delighted it worked for you. But number two, we, uh, we really started getting serious about design in that book. I had written about it before a fair amount, but we really put it front and center and unavoidable in that one. So it's, delighted to, it's delightful to see that it, uh, that it, that it had some hooks. Yeah, oh, oh, very much so, and and I agree with you because I, I had been following you and your blog for uh, for a number of years at the time, uh, and uh, but but I had been following it more from kind of a I guess a management and you know doing business in a different way, but I hadn't really thought about the the, the, the power of design on business in such a I guess considered way uh, prior to that. So that was that was a real eye opener for me. 
it's kind of funny actually thinking oh, about the impact of I mean so that was 2005 and since then the iPhones come out and you know the uh, you know guys like the the founders of Airbnb went to Rhode Island School of Design and, and the like and you start to yeah. see how commonplace really good user-centered experiences are now uh, I, I guess I'm kind of curious you know reflecting on what you thought of design back then and then looking at it today you know what what you've seen happen well Way back when, uh, 50 feet away, I've got the book, there's a management column a couple of times a week in uh, the Financial Times, and the guy who wrote it years ago was called Chris Lorenz, and he wrote a book called The Design Dimension. And that was kind of the first time, I'm trained as a civil engineer, so to me, a, design is a foreign language, and B, I don't trust designers. <laughs> uh, as, a, I, as a civil engineer, the people on our campus who we despised the most were the architects because they would design some gorgeous, fabulous-looking, incredible thing that was totally unbuildable. So my first exposure to design was very negative. Uh, anyway, Chris wrote this book, and it had lots of case studies. And I thought the case studies were really cool. And I, you know, my son went to RISD, but I, I have zero artistic talent. Uh, but, you know, the way that I work in general is frankly more intellectual. And so I started reading up like crazy and got really fascinated by it. And then Chris Lorenz, asked me to write the foreword to his book, which was very cool. And one of the funny things that happened was I developed a reputation as a design guru in the UK uh, and even won awards and, you know, had never opened my mouth about the topic in the U.S. But <laughs> I sort of, I just sort of grew into it. And, you know, I think the other thing that was happening one of one of the one of the things I use to this day is what I call TGRs and TGWs. Uh, Thirty or forty years ago, the quality of a car was measured by TGWs, things gone wrong. Mm. And you would buy a car, and ninety days later, you would go to your service station, and you would have a list of the twenty-seven things that hadn't worked. And, you know, then the quality movement came along and the Deming stuff came along and the continuous improvement came along. And then eventually Six Sigma came along and stuff worked. Uh, and so if stuff works, then what the hell are you going to do to differentiate? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sort of that, that pushed things in that, in that direction. I got an incredible amount of trouble, which was purposeful. Uh, two or three years ago in Frankfurt, note the word Frankfurt, <laughs> talking about this topic. And I said, well, I said, I got a Subaru. And my Subaru has 156,000 miles on it. And it's working great. And I said, with all due respect to you Mercedes people, in terms of quality, my Subaru and the Kia I rented last year are as good as anything Mercedes makes. I said, I totally acknowledge all the sexy stuff you've got on top. But the point of your question was, stuff works. How are you going to differentiate? 
Right. And I think in 1990, and I had been doing my writing and so on, and I think in 1990, uh, Pine and Gilmore came along with the Experience, Experience Economy book. That's right. Yeah, and that, that sort of changed everything. Uh, you know, the, the, the word experience got into the language, and, you know, obviously we were always doing it to some extent, but, you know, it became hot as a pistol. And it became hot for, in my opinion, for very good reasons. Though, to skip way ahead, and we should come back to what you're saying, but to skip way ahead, in my current book, I wrote a cautionary piece on experience. And I said, a lot of people think they can engineer an experience. And the experience that is wonderful is one that has emotional appeal. And, you know, you can't use, you know, you can't depend on metrics. You can't engineer it. There's, you know, the Don Norman, who's to me the guru of gurus in this stuff, uh, wrote a book called Emotional Design. And the one liner that I remember was he said, uh, a review of, <clears throat> and don't ask me to get this exactly right. The review, a review in a big auto magazine of the Mini Cooper S said, no car in recent memory has brought more smiles to people's faces. And he said, that's the kind of differentiation. He said, the thing has got to work. That's the functional part of it. Uh, you know, you've got to have the right kinds of features to make it appropriately sexy. But the question is, you know, where's the stuff that hooks people? And I, you know, one of the one-liners I, again, I use in my books and my presentation was a quote by Lorene Powell Jobs, Steve's wife. And the one-liner and the line, one-liner was uh, Steve and Johnny, as in Johnny Ive, the head Apple designer, Steve and Johnny would spend hours talking about corners. And you know, then there's the great jobsyism that says if a design is, you know, a design is good when you want to lick it. And yeah, somewhat unattractive as that is, I, I I really get it. And so, I think I think we've I think we've turned the experience economy in a bad. But it's the same damn thing that happens to everything. Uh, Six Sigma was fantastic, and then Six Sigma became a religion. And it, and, and it induced rigidity into systems. I think experience is doing the same thing. I am an arch enemy of agile if you capitalize the A, because then it becomes a religion. And, you know, when that, when that happens, you end up introducing bureaucracy. And to some extent, you may often be worse off than you thought. When, when some guy, GE guy, came to 3M, he installed down to the last nut and the last bolt, Six Sigma into, G, into 3M's innovative culture. And the reading I've done, and, and 3M incidentally was my favorite company in, in Search of Excellence in 82, and the research I've read says that basically Six Sigma came within a half an inch of killing 3M. And uh, you know, so these the systems can get, can get way out of hand. Well, again, I really appreciate that point, um, both on quality and also agile with a big A, because 
I think as, as we've seen more and more people, uh, or rather organizations, embrace design or what, what, what um, is commonly now referred to as design thinking, um, you do get this danger of um, the, the process can replace the people and the experience, right? Where it starts to become this paint by numbers uh, approach as opposed to good judgment, experience, nuance, uh, and, and, and not just kind of following the, the rules, so to speak. Uh, I would only change one word in what you said. Yes, what's that? You said, I believe, if my memory's worth a damn, the the process can eclipse the goal or something like that. And the word I would change is could or can to will. Will. I mean, I think it's absolutely inevitable that, you know, you get more... I, I remember. I remember one time, I, way, way, way back. IBM was known as the service company. That's how they broke out of the mold. Their computers didn't work. Other people's computer work, computers worked, but IBM had all this great market share, and they were doing the service thing right. Uh, and then the service thing turned into rituals. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I spoke. I spoke at an IBM sales conference and it's funny the things you can you know that stick in your mind and i can still see the conference table and i was sitting across from a i don't know vp or evp or or big deal and you know he was dressed perfectly like ibm guys were and he pulled a cigarette out of his pocket and just like the king or the queen of england the assistant who was standing there three feet away bent over immediately and lit the cigarette. Well, great service, you know, with hands on, be there on time, had deteriorated into rituals piled upon rituals piled upon rituals and nearly killed IBM. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I like the, 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 the change to will because I do think there is an inevitability that as you start to as you start to take any anything with its original intent, as you start to pull it apart and look at it as um, repeatable, uh, and then try to scale it, there is a danger that you lose the original intent of whatever that is, right? There is a certainty. There's not a danger, damn it. I'm going to work <laughs> in your language. You do. I got to. I got to be more specific. <laughs> There's a. You got to be more brutal. You got to. <laughs> you got to be a little. You got to be closer to my age. Definitive. A, you know, a little cynicism button. Uh, <laughs> one of my one of my old mentors more. here at at EPAM Continuum used to um, uh, quote uh, a Jimi Hendrix line when we we're trying to talk with clients who wanted to know, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll talk to an organization that's interested in, okay, what are the, what are the six steps that gets us to this design? And it's like, it, it doesn't quite work that way. And so he had a Jimi Hendrix quote I always use, um, that the blues is easy to play, but hard to feel. And I love that quote. And I think it's just probably the same oh, that you experienced wow. with quality and with agile, right? It's like, you can play the notes, but it doesn't mean that it's yep. doing it, right? No, absolutely, 100%. I mean, to to go really, which is awful with examples like that, because that's a beautiful example, to go to almost the other end of the the spectrum, uh, there was a system which may well have died, started a jillion years ago by Peter Drucker, and it was called MBO, which was Management by Objectives. Mm -hmm. And Drucker introduced it, you know, you're you're the you're the manager of a group of nine people, and I'm your boss. 
Drucker introduced MBO, uh, and he never capitalized the letters. And in fact, he never said the term MBO. What he said was management by objectives and self-control. And the whole point was you sat down with me, your manager, and you know, we chatted for, you know, over a period of time, a couple of weeks or a couple of hours or what have you. And we came up with your goals for the next three months. And then you went away and I never saw you again. Because the whole point was to give you a framework where you could behave autonomously. And 10 years later, the end self-control had disappeared. Lowercase m and b and o had become capital M, capital B, capital O. And the thing that was supposed to give you freedom was one more effing layer of control and bureaucracy. Right. And that was just the sweetest example you could imagine. That's a, I think that's a fantastic example. And it made, it reminds me again, I, I, um, I used to download all your PowerPoint presentations after you would post them after you gave the talk. One, um, one slide that I think was, was one that you came up with the term, and I think it was in response to MBO, was um, MBWA, Management by yeah, Walking do, Around. Do not, do not give me credit. That is the most important four letters in my life, and we found them at a youthful, non-bureaucratic Hewlett-Packard. Oh, and really? I fell in love because i saw you speak uh, on that because you know uh, yeah go ahead sorry yeah i you you will you'll see me now at the age of 200 get as emotional <laughs> as i did when we started talking about it in 1978 and it was always it was always about being in touch hanging out with the folks who do the work uh at hp in the days that uh, that that we did our stuff bill hewlett was still around and you would watch Bill, whose name was on the door, sit down, you know, at a at a computer screen or whatever kind of screens they had then. He would sit down next to a twenty three year old engineer and they would talk like peers for thirty minutes. And and the MBWA thing was, you know, absolutely positively beautiful and it still is today. I'll 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 add one small thing to it. You know, I'm over here and gorgeous New Zealand and I'm actually on the seaside and I always say this shamefacedly in my talks you know here I am 76 years old been writing about this stuff for 40 years and I God help me I find myself out on the beach thinking about MBO but I really had and you know this is this is related and off on another tangent in a way I really had this, to me, a real breakthrough, and in an odd way, it has to do with all the stuff that you and I have just been talking about. And so I'm walking on the beach and thinking about MBO, and uh, sorry, about MBWA. Why do you do MBWA? Well, you do MBWA to be in touch with the work where the work is being done, they used to say, at the coal face. You do MBWA so you can meet some of the people and understand who they are and so on. And that's MPWA. And I was on the beach and I said to myself, and you know, there's, there was no tape recorder and my iPhone was turned off. I said to myself, Tom, that is bullshit. 
the reason you do MBWA is because it's fun. And if it's not fun, go back to your office, write your letter of resignation, <laughs> and get the hell out of management for the rest of your life. If it's not a kick to be out with your team in the distribution center at 1 a.m., you are in the wrong job. And, you know, yeah, you learn all those things. I learn about the people, and I learn about what's really going on, and I learn about some of the roadblocks which are holding them up and all that's good stuff. But, but mainly it's, it's a, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's not a, you know, if it's not a, a hoot, a kick, a pleasure to be doing it, uh, you really are in the wrong job. And, and by the way, the team at the front will be able to read your attitude oh, sure. a hell of a lot better than you can. And they know when you're going through the ritual. Oh God, his boss said to the MBWA, Oh shit, it's 11 o'clock at night. You know, I should, I should, I should be watching whatever is on at 11 and here I am. So you can, you can, you can do it wrong. Right. I mean, so it's, it's, there was just, uh, I, I hate to continue these stories, but I mean, the stories, it, it, I gave away, I came across this tape, uh, tape, 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 one of the old tape tapes made out of, made out of plastic tape and written by a general by the name of Melvin Zace or the material. And it was called, you must care. And he said, leaders must care. And the one little story I remember, which is so indicative, he says, you're a lieutenant, and your guys are in the barracks, and they're getting ready for an inspection tomorrow morning. And he said, if you're, if you're the right kind of lieutenant, while they're doing that work, he said, you walk down to the barracks. He said, you do not have to open your mouth. You just walk down to the barracks and you sit down for a little while and walk out. And I can still remember his words. He said, they know that you know that they are working their asses off to make you look good. And, you know, that's a, to me, that's a nearly brings tears to your eyes. It reminds me, I, I keep a running list of quotes, and there's a the quote I, I had, I can't remember off the top of my head who said it, but there's one around, um, you can't lead a cavalry charge if you think you look funny on a horse. <laughs> I, I really like that, right? Because it's, I, kind of, it's kind of that point around, you have to be present and you have to be doing the work. You can't, just be, you can't just be, quote unquote, managing well, the, the things. Other, the other thing, because everything triggers a story for me, uh, Ulysses S. Grant was unbelievable in that regard. Uh, he always used to go riding with the troops, and typically when a general would go riding with the troops, he would bring seven colonels, nine majors, et cetera, et cetera. And Grant went out early in the morning, and he always went out alone. And the way this author who was writing about it described it from the notes and the diaries and the so on, he said, you know, when the other generals would would uh, show up, people would kind of run away or stand at attention. When Grant showed up, they treated him like the neighbor next door. And he used some of the language. And they said, morning, General, how are things going? And so on and so forth. But again, it was, well, the beautiful one. And uh, with, with any luck, we will not have that many uh, Brits who are listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, with great with great luck for your show, we'll have 
millions of them, and I hope you do. Um, but D-Day, uh, you know, Bernard Montgomery was the head of the English, or the British, the English troops, and they were talking about either the night before or the morning of, and by the way, I'm going to cry in, on the microphone before this is over, uh, and, the, and the night before the morning of the two generals, uh, you know, did their last thing. And Montgomery gave a speech to his troops. And it is said that it was absolutely one of the most perfect speeches imaginable. Eisenhower, who never wore medals on his jacket, went down to the beach and just hung out with the guys, one at a time, walking up and down the line, chatting. And one, one author who wrote about it, I'm, I'm getting spine tingles, even though I've told this a hundred times, and it's just, it's so unbelievable. It, it said Eisenhower was so in touch with his troops that moms and dads were willing to send their sons to die for him. I mean, if that's, if that's not a line for history, I don't know what the heck is. That's amazing. But that's, that's MBWA. That's right. It's just, it's just, I mean, honest to God, I, I wish, you know, I, I wish I could take a selfie for you because I really teared. I said it 200 times. And I can't say it without tearing up. But, you know, that's the essence of leadership. And, you know, that's when you do Agile with a lowercase a. And that's when you do Six Sigma with a lowercase s. Mm-hmm. And, and so on. And, and, and there's really a... I'm, I'm not a very religious person, but there is a spiritual dimension to it. So that, that's an interesting and notion. God, you have to worry about... You have to worry about that in your hiring, for God's sakes. That's you know, right. I mean, that's, that's right. where we screw up. We, 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 as they say, we promote the best salesman to sales manager, and the two jobs actually have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. Well, how do you, how do you balance the spiritual moving into the ritual, uh, or or is that like you said, it's inevitable whether it's design or it's quality or it's agile. Is, is there anything that you can do to kind of protect that or, or uh, well, slow part its, of my its involvement? Is, yeah, uh, part, part of my answer, which is not very attractive relative to the goals of the show, uh, is to say it's a losing battle. Uh, one of my old McKinsey colleagues, Dick Foster, who was a researcher's researcher, uh, did a study of the 1,000, 1,000, 1, 000, 1,000 largest publicly traded American companies over a period of 40 years. Over that period of 40 years, not a single one outperformed the market. And so, you know, I mean, as I said to somebody, for God's sakes, if you've got an N of 1,000, you... Think that they may, maybe one or two could have made it past the hurdle, uh, but you know it, re- it really is a downhill slide. When I'm in my smartass mode, when I'm giving a speech, I I say, hey, you know, have fun, go for it, do anything crazy. You're gonna lose, but you might as well enjoy the trip as out. you as you do it uh, as you do it. But but it's uh, you know I I think bureaucratic deterioration only goes in one direction and. You know, I would use, 
you know, to go back to my own experience, the, uh, the gorgeous, vital, lovely Hewlett Packard that Bob Waterman and I wrote about in In Search of Excellence in 82 and researched in 78 is long gone. And in its place, there are rigidities piled upon rigidities. And I, you know, we could, we could have a long discussion that's way beyond my skills about uh, monopolies and concentrations. And I get that. But I do not believe that the most modern of the modern of the modern of the tools that we have now will, in the long term, keep a Facebook or a Google or an Apple uh, from not uh, calcifying as well. It, it's hard because you uh, you end up fighting all the detritus that you've built up over the years as you as you look to scale. And I think I feel like the uh, the challenge is how you identify a second way of working when you're looking to innovate as opposed to whatever, I guess, first way of working that the optimized engine kind of yeah. does. Well, you know, one of the things, again, and this, this takes us back, but it also now, <laughs> it now has become common, is, uh, I don't think this is a search of excellence, I think this is my second or third book, either Passion or Thriving on Chaos, uh, I started studying the Lockheed Skunk Works. And Lockheed built its first skunk works in Burbank, California, to handle precisely what you have just talked about. Uh, the first thing that Kelly Johnson and his gang created was a famous spy plane called the SR-71. And the SR-71, and this is probably inaccurate, but it is within real close spitting distance. The SR-71 was developed by a team of 175 people, and it took them six or nine months. That's the it. same thing at Lockheed would have taken three to 4,000 people six to seven years. And, you know, they started this skunk works, and they put it out in the boondocks, and uh, they didn't micro-control it. Obviously, it had a finance guy who was doing the numbers. Uh, but, you know, for a while, that was the, you know, that, that, that was the secret. There's no, there's no way in hell you are going to de-bureaucratize the product development process in a big company. And so the answer is, or an answer is, uh, you know, create something really totally wacky, don't put it within 75 miles of the corporate headquarters, uh, et cetera. And, you know, I, I really fell in love with the Skunk Works thing. And the reality is, to this day, which is 40 years later, uh, the name of my company is the Skunk Works Inc. Mm -hmm. I, I, only discovered, I only discovered that last week. I discovered that it was still the name because I thought the name of my company was the Tom, Tom Peters, Peters company. <laughs> and I was having, well, I was, I was, I was trying to figure out something with Toronto Dominion Bank, which, you know, has a, has a fair hunk of my money and God bless them for the security stuff, but they were trying to do, you know, a security check thing before they talked to me. And they said, what's the name of your company? And I said, the Tom Peters company. I said, Tom Peters company. And they said, no, that is incorrect. 
Yeah. Well, and then it keeps on going. Then I thought and I thought and I thought and I thought, oh, shit, maybe we kept Skunk Works. And I said, the name of my company is Skunk Works, Inc. And they said, no, wrong again. Well, it turns out that the name is The Skunk Works, Inc. Oh, my goodness. But at any rate, we have still got our Skunk Works. uh, And we used to do this thing that was just incredible fun, (laughs) and I wish you had been around for it. You would have loved it. Uh, we got so turned on by this idea that I was, my house was in Palo Alto and down south of Monterey, about 90 miles away, we started holding these things called skunk camps. And they were basically aimed at answering the question, which you asked a couple minutes ago. And that is how do you get vitality back into a big corporation? And the whole idea was to try to, think skunkily, if you will. And so we spent five days talking about Kelly Johnson skunk works and the skunk works that I had run into at the Xerox Corporation and so on and so forth. And it was, it was really, A, it was great fun. And, you know, we really got some characters to attend. I feel like that could uh, that could be something you still run today because I feel like more and more of these large established companies are are looking at how they build up you know new business units or spin up new startups or you know partner with accelerators all all in that same service of getting away from the absolutely yeah yeah no ab- ab- absolutely the case one one thing you mentioned uh, around the you know the the idea of it's about how the talent you hire uh, to move away from that. Um, you talk a lot about hiring for empathy, the notion of pr- like empowering your employees. Uh, you know, we frequently see companies trying to build their internal human-centered design and innovation capability, trying to stay nimble and adaptable. And a lot of what we talk about is that that need to hire empathetic employees and then empower them so that they can, you know, have the decision-making rights to move faster, to be more nimble. Right. Uh, you know, you've been talking about that for, for decades. And I'm curious when you, when you look at today versus, you know, the last few years and, and even back into the, you know, the prior decades, has that gotten better? Cause it seems to me like a lot of companies are still well, very nervous about their employees, uh, empowerment. Oh, I think they are. I, I, God descended on my shoulder and gave me two of the greatest slides I have ever had. I'm not 100% happy with God because he gave them to me just too late to put in my <laughs> current book. And they are, they are literally two paragraphs, and if I had them at hand, I would, I would read them to you. Uh, but they are about Google, and they talk about two very serious, big data research projects that Google did. Uh, and number one, and I will waste a couple minutes of your time, number one was to do using the best of their analytics was to figure out what the characteristics were of the best Google employees. And so they came up with eight characteristics and number eight on the list was STEM skills. And all of the other seven were soft skills. You know, listens well, pays attention to other people's ideas and so on. So 
That was top employees. The second one they did was an analog, and it was most creative teams. And Google apparently breaks teams down into A teams and B teams, and the B teams routinely beat the crap out of the A teams. Really? And they did the analysis, and it was the same thing, the soft stuff. Uh, you know, listens, takes... I take your ideas into into consideration. I listen when you talk, et cetera. And one of them that was really uh, cool, I thought was fantastic and unsurprising to me, at least in in places like Google or Facebook, is the number one item that the B teams exhibited that the A teams didn't was no bullying. And you know, in that software world where everybody has an IQ of 372, and all all 300 of them graduated first in their class at MIT or Stanford, uh, they are bullies. They behave that way a lot of the time. But it was, it, I mean, it it is the most mind-boggling. As I said to somebody, my my life is over. All I have to do is show these two slides hand them out to people in paper copies or electronic <laughs> copies and then leave and say, there it is, guys, figure it out, guys and women. You know, there, there's the proof. And yes, as I said, I love it because it was Google. Because, it, it, you know, if it was Joe and Harry's Bar and Grill, it would be anecdotal. But Google has never done anything anecdotally in their whole bloody life. Right. And, you know, it's also such a good example, too, where the, 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 your point around STEM coming in at number eight, it's like, that's great that you have these incredible engineering skills or your 375-point uh, IQ, but there is no substitute for being able to work and build off the ideas of others and communicate clearly, and, and, and that goes for the leading tech companies as much as it does anything else. Yeah, and you know what I haven't read? Well, I have read it indirectly, but you trigger the thought. Uh, those skills are far more important, I would hypothesize, on remote teams than they are on teams that are together. You know, when, when 40 of us from 30 locations in nine countries on three continents are trying to get something done, it, you know, and I know it's being done electronically, blah, 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 but to really get something good done, you know, really requires a deft and a human touch to make, to pull it off. And you, you, you could, you could argue that that's actually more important than, uh, you know, than, than it is in the big open office at Google or Facebook. Right. And that's, that trend's only going to continue to increase. And incidentally, on one of my favorite topics, it's also one of the reasons that particularly in these uh, distributed environments that the research shows pretty clearly that women on average are better managers than men. They listen better, they can handle ambiguity better, and, uh, you know, that's, if you will, the perfect design for the kinds of teams we're using today. That's right. Guys are good if there's a hierarchy. Uh, Women are better when there's, you know, ambiguity and no rules which is what innovation is so that 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 makes total sense right that you know how do you navigate ambiguity and and, uh and uh figure out what what comes next what to do next 
Well, yeah. incidentally, and it's and it's, it's again, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's it's something that I'm paying a little bit more attention to. Those kinds of skills ought to be, and you can't get it entirely out of a classroom, ought to be far more intensely taught in professional schools than they are today. And I'm not talking about computer science. I'm talking about computer science, engineering, law, medicine, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I, I remember the guy who invented the checklist, who was not Gwandi, who wrote the book, but a Hopkins doc by the name of Peter Pronovost. And I remember Peter saying in his book, he said, when I was in medical school, I probably looked through a microscope for 300 hours, something that I have never done for one microsecond since I got out. And he said, I did not have one minute of team leadership training, and here I am now running the ICU at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And, you know, and that's a, you know, A, it's a disgrace, but B, the, the professional, all the professional schools need this. You know, they say it about law school. Law schools don't teach you how to, I mean, of course, most people work in offices and they don't make it onto the, you know, to the courtroom floor. But, you know, the, the lawyers don't know how to talk in front of a judge. The, the uh, Stanford and MIT computer science people don't know how to deal with their next door neighbor. And in all the professional schools, that's arguably the case. Yeah, this idea of training for collaboration and how you actually work in in teams, as opposed to whatever you know discrete craft or skill that you're that you're building up. Yeah, and I and I think that I think the evidence is pretty clear, and I do not pretend to be an expert that that stuff is teachable. I can't teach it to you the same way that your second grade teacher taught you the multiplication tables, but I can give you a lot more sensitivity and thoughtfulness toward these topics. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, we you, you talk a lot about hiring for empathy, and we hire here for, we kind of have four, four uh, I guess, attributes that we're always looking for. Uh, empathy, curiosity, poetry, and logic. And I think all four of those are... Oh, my God, I love it. I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. And that, I love that's it. kind of the filter. Number three. Sorry. Oh, poetry. Uh, particularly number three. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because my, I think my, I think each when, of those are when your when your son or grandson attends my MBA school twenty five years from now, I will be long dead. He is going to take or she is going to take an art appreciation course. And on top of that, the school will be still called an MBA, but it will be called the Master of Business Arts. I love it that you That's guys cool. do that. No, it is not cool. It is seriously hot shit. There are some things that deserve words like cool, and hot shit may or may not be appropriate in this context, but that's what it is. That's what it that is. That is great. It's, a, it's critical to be able to tell stories and connect and not just have that, that part where you're, you're, you're spouting the facts or you're just trying to lead people through. You have to be able to, to uh, you know, make things sing, so to speak, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a uh, 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long way from you guys or in a way, but it's, it's the basic point. There's a one liner that I found, uh, 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 depending on how much history you took. One of our secretaries of state was a guy by the name of Dean Rusk. And the wonderful line from secretary Rusk is the best. And this is precise. The best, way to persuade someone is with your ears and that's a beauty that's really good because yeah. then you understand what they're what they're looking for what their needs are and can respond accordingly Ab- right? Ab- absolutely absolutely i mean the, the mark twain version of uh dean rusk was never miss a good chance to shut up <laughs> There's no, another. Are, I'm, a, I'm a big Twain. I'm a big Twain fan, and oh, an, yeah. another one of my quotes, or one of his quotes that I use is, "It's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than open it and remove all doubt." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, that's his. That's his sense of humor. Point, but I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, I know we're. I know we're. Who coming. was the Oklahoma guy? You have Twain, and who was was it? Roger? Who that? There was a Twain. Will Rogers, Will, yeah. yeah, Will, 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 Will Rogers, who, who uh, you know, did the same thing with an with an Oklahoma tag, yeah, twang, tang, whatever the hell it is. Anyway, this has been a great conversation, incidentally. I yeah, mean, for this me, is, this is this is uh, fantastic, and I, I have to tell you that a, the the mix of everything from history to business analogs is is right up my alley. So this is uh, we we should do this daily, every morning when you wake up in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I, I, I mentioned to you that I have this running list of. Hey, I'll do. I'll, I'll, we can talk about that. I will not do it every day in New Zealand, but I'd love to stop by, as it were, every ten minutes on some semi-regular basis. It would be a kick. That would be fun. Uh, we could do like a a, a ten-minute riff uh, every once in a while. That would be so much fun. Uh, yeah, that would be fun for me. This was a terrific conversation. And I, uh, I feel and like I mean, between the can, two of us, we other, have other enough than, quotes. Other than too. your talents, who can who can uh, who can fight somebody who hires people with one of the four dimensions being poetry? That's right. I love it. So the um, the fact that you said that that um, as a civil engineer, you're not responsible for your son going to RISD. So is that the poet uh, the poet mother that was the one that uh, ab- enabled ab- that? Absolutely. That was actually is my ex-wife, but my my wife is a an artist, a tapestry artist, a oh, weaver, wow. and so on. So she uh, she passed the art art gene directly on to Max. That's awesome, and uh, it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah, you know no, the the, the fact that you uh, that that um, you and and reimagine got me thinking on design and and uh, how you know as you said that you didn't really appreciate design back in the back in the early days, uh, it'd be fun to imagine what you would have thought, you know, back in, in uh, 1982 as you're writing In Search of Excellence, if you thought your son was going to go to an art school instead of uh, engineering or, or business, huh? That's, I, I would prefer not to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the answer is, yep, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm just thrilled with the whole thing personally. I think it's I think it's great. And and also, you know, we haven't 
you know, we haven't done our deep analytic dive and we don't have time to do our deep analytic dive, but I believe that all of this stuff is uh, the best counter at least for the next 10 or 15 years to the incursion of artificial intelligence. Mm. I think it's going to be a long time before AI does poetry. Yeah. I like to think that there's still a, a, a good runway for us as, as humans to, uh, to maintain our humanness before all that gets replaced. By the way, there is a terrific book and person who goes with it, who maybe you've done some stuff with, uh, the book is called The Business Romantic, and the author is Tim Lieberecht, oh, and he's nice developed a really great... It is fabulous. Please, 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 please go get it. It's, it's abs- absolutely a first-rate piece of work, and it uses the language that you're talking about. Well, Tom, thank you so much. This is uh, the highlight of my year. Uh, no joke. This has been uh, a blast. And uh, I, uh, well, I appreciate you uh, being in New Zealand, being willing to, 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 uh, to do this. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and music. And we love hearing how different people go about doing this transformation repeatedly. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Thanks to Tom Peters and John Campbell for their great conversation. Many thanks to Kit Pilalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Jen Ashman, and to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.